Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. Avoid legal snags by telling people they're being recorded. <laughs> You're being recorded. I see it. I see it at the top left. I'm ready. I'm ready for you. Welcome, Dan. Uh, thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, so we know your work. And, and for people who, who are sort of following us on our podcast, they know that our point of view was always around how in current times, technology has seemed to be very uh, inclined to sort of what be weaponized and used on the social sphere, on the sphere of human sense making, how people connect with each other. And I know Dan that that you have very elaborate and, and well-informed point of view points of view on how artificial intelligence in particular, you know, can can be involved in war or in geopolitics. Um, we know you've spoken a little bit about filter bubbles at the UN. Uh, do you want to start a little bit telling us a little bit about that and what's your take? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, there's there's a lot, depending on what corners you want to go into. You know, if you want to talk about uh, missile systems and tanks, we can do that. If you want to just talk about the U.S.-China thing, we can do that. So there's there's so much. But I'll yeah. just do a little background where I'm coming from. So some of your folks might not be as tuned into to our work. So the, the company I run is called Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. So I'm CEO head of research here. Um, our focus is mostly on financial services and defense and security. The work is really mapping what's possible and what's working in the space of AI. So what that means is really looking at the whole startup ecosystem of AI companies. What are the new kinds of capabilities they're enabling? What, what, uh, what are they allowing companies and, and big firms to do? Um, and then when we look at the enterprises, what are they adopting? What are they using? And really the hard work of our research, my call directly before you was the head of AI at U.S. Bank. So like hang up and now I'm on this interview with you. So my life is full of calls with you know, folks in the, the very high up enterprise AI side and all the different vendor companies, a lot of our research is the same. So the perspective is grounded on what's delivering value and actually working in the, in the world. When it comes to security, um, a lot of my focus has been on the kind of digital sphere that I know you folks talk about. I think, you know, what we could do with computer vision on a tank or on a helicopter is interesting, but I think that the uh, plausibly deniable country to country sort of disturbances that we can create through through media uh, and, and through the, the uh, uh, sort of playing with perception, if you will, I think is going to be the big game uh, in, the, in the 10 years ahead. And I think even during the election season, we should see um, a swell of that to which we are not currently currently prepared. So yeah, my, my grounding is really in the value of AI for businesses. The people that pay us are you know, banks, um, mm. we've done projects for the World Bank, et cetera. Uh, but but my passion is to a great degree in, in security. So anyway, it'll depend on what you want to know. But that's where yeah. I'm coming from, and I'll be I'll fully admit what I don't what I don't, I'm not an expert in. But I'll I'll bring my perspective to bear. Thank you for that introduction. So so let me zoom in a little bit onto what what we're interested in. How do you think AI is 
currently involved in the, let's say, dynamics of public opinion in general, in social media, obviously through the internet. How do you think AI is, can come into play or is coming into play in that sphere? Yeah, I, I think it's happening through, um, I think it's, it's happening through the platforms that actually permit it to be used. So if we didn't have a Facebook or we didn't have a Twitter, might it be possible to simply comb the web for that which is published on various and sundry blogs and come up with general sentiment and trend understandings that we could then use to pick up on what people care about? Sure, sure we could. But it's really best done by the companies that are facilitating this, these platforms. Right? That's where the money's at. Um, so that's where the talent's at, the, the best AI talent in the world. I mean, I was in, we interviewed the head of core machine learning at Facebook some four years ago when I lived in the Bay Area. Um, and they got a whole building, like my house that I'm in right now, it's probably 40 of these. And it's all ML, you know, experts and folks working on AI applications. Mm -hmm. You don't have that with, you know, any, any given government, there's hardly a government agency that has that much dense experience. So where is it happening? Um, it could happen in various and sundry dispersed sources that we could, could filter, but the talent density and the unification of data around similar things in, in one place is really uh, happening across platforms. Of course, Facebook being really the name of the game here. I think um, you know, Google plays less of the social game, but certainly um, brings things to our attention more than others based on its own set of algorithms. Twitter is its own ecosystem. YouTube is, I think, an extremely important ecosystem and only getting more important. Uh, as their their kind of uh, use times go go up and up, um, but yeah, if you were to say where's the action at, I would say well, let's figure out where the most unified sets of data exist and where the most money in the damn world and the most density of AI talent in the damn world exist, mm -hmm. and that's a very handful of places in on the other coast that I used to live on. So uh, yeah, that's that's how I'd sum it up. That's interesting. Um, so there's this idea which you're probably familiar with, which is fourth generation warfare, which is a term that refers to when competition or uh, let's say the dynamics of warfare start to seep into information and psychological warfare, etc. Uh, I know I'm kind of making a crude uh, characterization, but this is to, to point to the following. Um, <clears throat> let's say that Google is more in the business of gathering data and Facebook is slightly more downstream towards the side of curating that data or rather seeing how that data applies to the different bubbles of reality. Um, we know you speak about, you spoke about this at the, at the UN, um, and we know that there's a lot of talk today in, in, in mainstream media about the deep fakes, about fake news, um, and we seem to see these things congregate around certain filter bubbles, reality tunnels, certain ways to perceive the world that have set values and set opinions. Um, so, so maybe could you expand uh, uh, on this point and go a little bit deeper from saying that, well, it's happening through Facebook and through Twitter and go a little bit deeper into perhaps how it is happening and, sure. and what are some of the finer dynamics in there? Yeah, so actually the interview that we did with Facebook's uh, head of core ML, I've interviewed one of the heads of their um, data labs here in Boston as well, but um, interestingly enough, this was just when the filter bubble idea was getting on the radar. This is before Trump was elected, I think. Um, and, and, you know, I brought up the topic very lightly in the interview, but, you know, it wasn't something that to me I was like super de-duper concerned about at the time. Um, 
but but now I, I think, you know, it's somewhat self-evident that this is a, a bigger deal. So, you know, if we talk at a high and conceptual level, and some of this is actually drawn from, so that whole interview was about personalization. Of course, the guy didn't give me the secret sauce, but, you know, explained concepts. So the, the idea here, as far as I can tell, is that really we're optimizing for engagement. So we're optimizing for what's getting people to comment, what's getting people to like, what's getting people to continue to scroll. Um, and that's not necessarily optimizing for anything other than engagement. It's, it's just optimizing for what does that. And as it, as it so happens, it may be particularly bothersome or disturbing things. It may be things that they happen to really agree with and they can really root for and feel like they're on the same team. So when they log into Facebook, they're kind of with their, their cohort, right? Their comrade, so to speak. Um, and so ultimately, Facebook needs to determine signals. And so individual signals might be a comment, a like, it might be the context of a comment, right? What did they actually type? The words, the meaning. Um, it might be videos that they upload, being able to extract the natural language and the voice from those videos, maybe to some degree interpret it in terms of, of uh, visuals, although I'm not sure if they're able to do that for all uploaded videos. But they, they have this slew of signals they're able to read. And, and they also have behavior uh, activities that they want to optimize for. So how many logins in a given day? How long do people spend mm -hmm. on the platform, for example? And also, I would imagine some measure of what we might refer to as customer lifetime value. How long are they engaged over time? Maybe there's a referral thing in there, too, right? How often do they share Facebook? But I, I think that kind of handles itself at this point. Um, so, so they've got things they're optimizing for, and then they've got signals. And it's kind of a combination of how does the content and the stuff we could put in front of people, how does the interface itself, you know, take in more and more of those signals to optimize for the things we're trying to optimize for. And so I doubt Facebook has the intention of building filter bubbles. In fact, I would almost bet my life savings that they don't. But I would say that that as a consequence of human psychology, as a consequence of us wanting to affirm our own beliefs or us wanting to have an enemy or, um, you know, the people that want to have an enemy, Facebook probably shows them enemies, right? The people yeah. who want to feel warm and fuzzy about their beliefs, they, they want them to feel warm and fuzzy. The people who uh, unfortunately, you know, the people like me who really don't want to associate with either political pole and want to have intelligent discourse are, you know, there's not enough of us for anybody to give a crap. So, you know, we're just going to get bombarded with one party or the other. But, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you're asking sort of big picture, how does it work? That's basically it. What's interesting you know, is something... that, sorry, go ahead, Owen. So you've spoken about the decentralization uh, of power around these big conglomerates and companies. I guess one of the things I'm wondering is, is that pattern likely to continue for the foreseeable or do we expect a kind of decentralization and a spread of talent as time goes on? I know it's something that within the world of nuclear proliferation, people talk about the past century, it was basically nukes were in Russia and America. But now they're in other places and we don't quite know who's got them and what the capabilities are. I guess it's kind of interesting from the perspective that you're also researching and mapping where capabilities are. I'm expecting that people with the real, the real powerful shit don't want anyone else to know about it. But yeah, I guess, I guess my question is, do you get a sense of how the power is and might disperse? Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, when we talk about power, I guess there's a lot of contexts here. Um, do you mean, the fact that Facebook is the only game in town for uh, social or Amazon is the only game in town for e-commerce, like that kind of power? Or do you mean the power as in where is the talent? So I, I mentioned the density of AI talent in the Bay Area is just gargantuan. Um, you know, we did so many hundreds of interviews out there for good reason. Um, uh, what, by what means do you refer to power? And then I'll give you my answer. 
Yeah, I'd go with the uh, the companies itself, like Facebook being the ones who who own the the personal data and who are thus yeah. able to to direct ads in that so, way. Um, this is, uh, I would say. So here here's my belief is that these are really snug natural monopolies. The the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons. Um, in in a very very important way. So one one very popular piece that I wrote actually for Huffington Post some uh, three four years ago now was around insights from venture capitalists. So when I lived in the Bay Area again, I drove around. I went to you know, Canvas Ventures and uh, Floodgate and uh, a bunch of these other players, Excel and a bunch of these other players out there, and essentially talked about what is it about AI firms that makes them VC investment worthy? What are we looking for here? And ultimately, the commonalities there were uh, venture capitalists are looking for what we now refer to as data dominance. If people Google, you know, emerge, E-M-E-R-J, data dominance, they'll pull up a, an article that I've written uh, at great length about this particular theme. I'm not saying venture capitalists are bad people, right? This is me. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm saying they want to invest in things that are going to make money. And the, the big inspiration here is that if we can create a proprietary data plume, that's in the words of a fellow by the name of Ben Narison, who used to be at Canvas Ventures. I always loved the term. He said, proprietary data plume. I just thought it was funny. Um, but essentially, we have an ecosystem that's generating a tremendous amount of valuable data with which we can deliver a valuable product service experience. And if that can be a virtuous cycle, in other words, because that experience is so good, we get more users, which means more data. Then we can have an even better experience, which means people are only going to pick us more, which means we get more users, which means we get more data. Flywheel, flywheel, flywheel. This is the Amazon story, the Google story, the Facebook story. That story, quick sidebar, doesn't translate ubiquitously for all AI products. I mean, a lot of the stuff I focus on, one of my calls earlier this week was with a rather large Australian bank who's one of our customers. Um, and these are people that trust us to basically help build AI strategies, pick high ROI projects. The companies that are doing fraud detection for anti-money laundering or something like that in banking, it's, it's much harder for them to move from one enterprise to another and just instantly like click immediately. Um, it's, it's the different integrations, it's all very hard. But with Facebook, sort of, Yes, people are different, but the interface is all the same. The features are all the same. And so it, it allows us to kind of unify and also scale much more quickly. We don't need a two-year sales cycle to break our way into HSBC Bank. We can just get somebody to download a damn app. So anyway, um, the, the big inspiration is that is that that's, that's like the grandiose dream of AI for all venture capitalists, more or less. I'm not, I'm not going to pigeonhole everybody, but I'm going to say you want, when you want the next Facebook, that's actually what you're talking about. And when you're investing in an AI company, and you throw in, let's say, a $50, $100 million round, ultimately, you probably aren't going to do that unless you think that data dominance cycle is viable. Um, mm -hmm. So I would suspect that unless there's a new definition of antitrust, Facebook, Google, Amazon are, are, are going to sit where they're going to sit. Um, the, the, the forces aren't there to pull them apart as much as they are to concentrate them, uh, in my current opinion. In my current opinion. So that's the answer there. Let me zoom into into that point. So, so I'm gonna try to take Owen's question and try to divert it a little bit deeper into what we're thinking about. So, you mentioned data dominance that these monopolies kind of because of the sheer amount of data that they have that they are able to provide these platforms, which, in the words of Marshall McLuhan, would equate to the medium. Right? People interact through Facebook through the medium, and that is uh, it indissociable from, say, filter bubbles, from, say, mimetic tribes, because that's what the platform is about. Like you said, it's not, it's not as if Facebook is designing mimetic tribe A, B, or C. They're just providing the medium. However, in terms of the message, 
that's where it gets more interesting for uh, for me and uh, especially in Ferroan as well. But as a designer, I'm very interested in looking at not only the data dominance, the sheer amount of data, but also the data curation. Not only having a lot of data, but designing that data, uh, curating its quality, which is more at the level of the message, really. It's more at the level of what's going to emerge, um, what reality bubbles or how reality bubbles are created. Um, do you see any, any sort of, say, development in that area, in the area of, of, of utilizing AI to curate reality, to create perception? Yeah, I, I think, you know, to go back to the Facebook example, again, I, I don't know their secret sauce, but broadly speaking, there's only one way to skin this cat uh, conceptually. So going back to that, um, they've got a set of features that they know about. Um, so that they have a set of signals that a different an individual user can give them, you know, like a comic. <laughs> they've got uh, things they're optimizing for, which they might mm -hmm. be changing slightly how important some of those factors are. Maybe in India, they're optimizing for something different than America. We don't know exactly what they're optimizing for, but they're optimizing, that's, that's for sure. And they're good at it. Um, then, then there's the actual material we could put in front of them. And there's likely to be all sorts of various and sundry factors about that material. How, you know, how quickly is it getting engagement or how much engagement net over time? There's, there's factors like that. There's factors about what's inside of it. So, you know, is this mm. a cat picture? You know, we know people that like cat pictures and they're always going to like them. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I have a buddy in, uh, San Luis Obispo on the other side of the country who, who got a bunch of cats from like a barn and he's like raising them and trying to get them homes. And, like every time he posts a bunch of, a bunch of the pictures of these cats, I've liked them like, like for five times in a row. And now it's like literally anytime he posts about these cats, they're at the top of my feed because I think mm -hmm. he's probably understood that that's what I'm into. So, so you know, we, we have the signals Facebook can take from the users. We have whatever they're optimizing for, and then we have whatever the, the various messages are. And we have all sorts of ways to extract what those messages are and which one should go in front of what people. And we're matching. We're matching them, not in the same direct way, but in a similar way as Netflix is matching you with the horror movie it thinks you're going to want to watch based on how you've reviewed the last 12 horror movies. Right? It just, it just, you know, here's the inventory. Facebook's inventory is changing all the time, unlike Netflix. It's not quite as variotous. Um, but... Uh, you know, they have their inventory and they're going to display whatever they think is going to match with you and get the signals they want to get to, to know that they're optimizing for mm. whatever they're optimizing. So I think that's, that's the way realities are being built here. Mm. It's, it, it's as if you were describing the technical process by which Facebook, if it was sort of the only player, would, would sort of aggregate and, and create the realities of people. But what about when the Cambridge Analyticas of this world... Um, to give a, a concrete example, get involved with games of, of, of geopolitics, of generating insurgencies, of weaponizing reality bubbles for, for these types of warfare. Um, is that happening? Has that happened? How is that going to happen? Well, I mean, look, man, I, I feel tough about the West at large right now. In exactly. In a lot of ways, man. But uh, I think that when is it weaponized is... Um, obscenely subjective. It's obscenely subjective as to when it's weaponized. So I don't recall all the nuances of the Cambridge Analytica story, but but obviously they were using um, purportedly leveraging AI, probably pulling out people's data, purportedly leveraging AI in ways that were against Facebook's terms and conditions, from what I recall. Again, I don't remember the legal case. It's a little bit less my business. We work with banks. Banks pay us uh, more than you know. Um, I don't know whoever's doing Facebook ads or mm -hmm. something. So, um, but but. Uh, 
they're using data in ways that maybe was not permitted by the terms of service, et cetera, et cetera. What, what I would get at is what is weaponizing? In other words, right now, some people would say, well, you know, um, uh, drumming up enough excitement to get people to throw Molotov cocktails into storefronts and pull down like, um, you know, George Washington statues, never mind uh, Columbus statues, is this weaponizing of, of Facebook. I think in the Bay Area, it's very clear that that's not weaponizing Facebook. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a force of good uh, in, in, in certain, certain eyes. Now, I'm not going to sit here and make a judgment myself. I think there's all kinds of comments back and forth on that. But I think the, it's clear the area is gray. And it's clear that you could see how in, in Atlanta, probably that's, that's going to be seen maybe as not as, as a, a weaponization. Um, while, while in San Francisco, so long as you don't own a storefront and, and you're safe from all that stuff, you, know, you could see it as a net good, um, kind of the proliferation of noble and grandiose values. Um, so mm -hmm. what is weaponized, I think, is tough. Sort of it's, if it's operating within the terms of service um, and if it's not false accounts, then probably we can almost never pin down weaponization or weaponization will be just based on whatever moral milieu is winning in that day. So Facebook has a moral milieu that is clearly winning. It's the same one that wins in the Bay Area writ large. There, there's a, there's a, it's very palpable, my good man. It's palpable. <laughs> um, and so uh, there is a moral milieu, and, and I suspect that this milieu will be victorious in all circumstances where it is technically playing by the rules. Weaponized will be whatever the folks in power um, determine to be weaponized. Now, there's a chance of breaking the rules, that is to say, using data in a way we're not allowed to, or um, creating, let's say, false accounts, which is probably, again, against the, the terms of service, so the Russia-type stuff. In those cases, um, I think we should be able to crack down on it um, more and more. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, there's so many permeable <clears throat> gates to which the West is open to those kinds of, of, uh, of, of tweaking. Um, our, our digital ecosystem is just so permeable and so wide open to, to interference, and, and that of sort of the, the, the great power uh, adversaries to the states, um, you know, uh, are, are, are less so. So they've got, a, they've got a much nicer control of the bubble of their own folks, and they ain't letting us into their bubble, um, uh, cer certainly not with ease. And, and, uh, but they, they can come into our bubble more or less whenever, whenever they want. I mean, China has um, you know, their China TV YouTube channels, right? And then, and then if the Chinese government creates a bunch of Hong Kong accounts, you know, shout out, right? But um, if, if the Chinese government uh, creates a bunch of Hong Kong accounts um, about like, how the protesters are bad and you know, um, Hong, Hong Kong uh, uh, prefers tyranny um, you know, from, from their own will, um, and then and then YouTube takes those down, which has happened. They're still going to keep up all the other accounts, so they'll take down the fake ones, but the, but the per, the permeability is still there. So so the China account is kosher. That's not weaponization, but if the wrong values are being put forth through this system by whoever has the milieu, it's just it's just the it's the flavor of the day, right? I'm not saying it's the wrong. Mm. I'm just saying it is is it it is admittedly arbitrary because ten years ago the values were different, right? So. Um, th there's a, a degree of, of arbitrary shift there, but um, I would say weaponization can't even be pinned down unless we're breaking the rules. Um, but but it's very open in between those, you know, playing by the rules uh, landscape. Fantastic. Um, there's an argument to be made <laughs> that the way that social structures were able to achieve coherence, certainly over the past 100 to 150 years, pretty much before now, was via a very constrained 
media and informational ecosystem. So essentially you could get your news through a few newspapers, the TV, the radio, and that would be about it, which would mean actually the range of opinion was quite limited. You could have diversity, but everyone could still have a general sense of belonging to this thing called America or Britain, which has a national media culture. Now we have the internet, we have the blogosphere, we have Facebook, we have Twitter. While those legacy media and information institutions still exist, there's also a proliferation of so many other outlets and YouTubers that all seem to be talking in this kind of cacophony, this mass jabbering, and everybody has a voice. And I guess the argument is that this is leading and playing into a lot of the political unrest and destabilization we're seeing at the moment. Do you kind of agree with this analysis? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough to say. You know, I'm not a sociologist, um, and I, again, I won't pretend to have expertise beyond that, which which, which I can reasonably prove. But um, I, I think that there's something to be said on the good side of, you know, anybody who wants to have a blog to say what they want to say. And even if I don't agree with it, if it isn't advocating violence against anybody, I, I probably would defend their right to do that. Um, that feels, it feels like the right move. Maybe it just feels that way because I was born in America. And maybe if I was born in China, I would be like, break their legs and put them in the camp. Um, you know, I have no idea. Um, but but, but my, my instinct is that there's a good there. But obviously, I think that there can be um, some unforeseen ills there as well, where we can have these ripples of, of sentiment come from uh, any various and sundry corner and, and really create pretty big shakeups, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. I think it certainly makes things more complicated. That's all I can be sure about. Um, you're suspecting that maybe it makes us more fractured as nations. Is this what I'm hearing? Okay. Yeah. Um, I could probably get behind that. I could probably get behind that. I, I don't know for sure. You know, if we only had newspapers, would we feel more like, hey, you're still an American or not? Um, you know, you, you, as opposed to like, oh, you're my political enemy, so I, I won't even discuss anything with you because you're evil. Um, uh, my gut feels like, like, yeah, I feel like you're onto something there, but but I don't know how to run the concurrent test, right? I don't know how to run the alternative reality where we just have papers and I can tell you for sure, right? I need two, 200 of both concurrent realities. So I, mm. I think you're onto something, but I'm not <clears throat> smart enough to be able to have a firm stance there. I guess much of, uh, and, and this is the final time I'll kind of circulate around this topic and then we can move on. Um, there's 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 a, ser a series of very interesting ideas that we've come in con into contact recently that have to do with how um, it's basically the idea of an automated cult, of an autom AI coming in and utilizing machine learning to um, basically A-B test what sort of emotional and psychological reactions people will have to certain uh, certain symbols and thereby create a sort of semiotic hacking whereby they optimize people for certain beliefs based on their psycho psychography and thereby engage in automating cult creation and meaning creation uh, from that perspective humans becoming trained behavioristic behavioristically just a little bit uh, like like the, the bf skinner anecdote of, of pigeons who know how to read Whereas in turn, they're just, uh, in fact, they're just reacting to stimuli. Um, and so that was the angle that we were trying to refer to when we were talking about the weaponization of filter bubbles, having the potential to, in the near future, just scale uh, a lot. 
Do yeah. Kind of agree with that? You just want my response to this general dynamic you're articulating. There. Your response, and if you have any sort of point of view on whether or not that that has a future, that has yeah, uh, that's happening. I I I think it does. So I'll talk about it in the context of existing platforms. We'll just use Facebook as the obvious um, sort of king of the hill there, and then I'll talk about it beyond um, just Facebook. So within within Facebook alone, I expect from political parties to brands to you name it. Um, to to uh, you know adversarial nations, um, there's there's a lot of effort put into um, what can we do to drum up really consistent engagement or sentiment of a certain kind about certain topics, and maybe that's against party or company X, maybe it's for party or company Y, um, maybe we want to tie that to again you'd mentioned symbols or something, so it's it's not just generate feelings, but be able to to generate feelings around whatever the the flag is or the, the, the symbol is, et cetera. I would imagine that there's a lot of players working very, very hard um, to, to find ways to measure, calibrate, and test that across different audiences. They can use paid channels of Facebook, lookalike audiences, um, you know, multiple different pages, individual personal accounts to kind of test what the experience looks like across different kinds of accounts, whatever, um, and really get a, get a gauge as to what's working. Now, the problem with doing that on Facebook is that um, this is very similar, what I just articulated to you is kind of similar. It can be an, an, uh, an analogy can be made to optimizing for search engines. So we don't know how Google's algorithm works and it changes often, but we can still calibrate from the outside. What do we do to make sure we rank? What do we do to make sure they don't rank above us? What do we do to go up here, show up there, whatever. Um, that, that sort of gaming of a system that you don't get um, can, can be useful. And in fact, you can build big businesses off of it um, but you're ultimately still not in control. Um, Facebook, I, I suspect, when they roll out big changes to the ad interface or big changes to um, you know, maybe advertising limitations for certain age groups or geo regions, when they roll out um, you know, a different way that the newsfeed looks on mobile, um, all of these things might change those strategies pretty radically where it's going to be harder to measure stuff. So, so can really ardent efforts be put forth on those big platforms? Yes. But we're we're messing with a with a black box that um, we're we're hinging entirely on a black box that can can maybe make things harder for us. But I'm sure it's being done, right? You have the Cambridge Analytica's. I'm sure there's people who are legally doing like within within the terms of service what Cambridge Analytica uh, was was doing. Um, there's also probably a higher level of this where we can look at proxies of engagement maybe across the web more broadly in terms of the blogosphere, forums, different kinds of divergent social media networks. And we can aim to build a narrative through uh, all sorts of media and have kind of an aggregate sort of impact score compared to our, our competitors, right? Compared to the competitive political view, compared to the competitive company. And we can look at our aggregate sentiment in the blogosphere, on the forums, on social site X or Y. And so we can then be seeding media across these different channels and, and we, can, we can try to measure the net. Um, I think that if you're, if you're smart and you're playing the big game, you're not leaning on Facebook. If you're smart and you're building a business, you're not leaning on search engine optimization entirely because Google can pull that rug, right? Facebook can pull that rug, hypothetically. But if you have strategies that you can measure at a little bit of a higher level, um, and, and then, then that can kind of, I guess, make good on, on an aggregate strategy that, that is to some degree more under your control. So I think this could be done on either level. I think the smart, sophisticated players are playing it at the highest. Fascinating. 
Do you know, let me ask something which is slightly going on in a different direction now. But obviously with the uh, with the Emerge company, you're doing a lot of work consulting and researching with these top organizations. And I know AI is really a hot topic in discourse at the moment. But are there any blind spots you think in the public imagination where business and indeed even politics are looking, but people don't know? Uh, yeah. So, man, I mean, well, there's a hundred thousand of these that I could talk about. I mean, well, there's there's ones around what makes AI work, for example. So a lot of our job, I wish I could tell you, hey, you know, I walk into the C-suite, um, they totally understand AI, its use case ranges, you know, where it can plug into business. And, you know, we show them kind of the map of, of ROI in so much as we've done. And, you know, we work together to put together strategy. But a lot of it actually is certainly providing that information. But frankly, a lot of the, the higher level executives have to understand how AI works, sort of like what's a realistic use case. There's no BSO meter as to whatever a vendor promises them. So there's all kinds of things that I would want folks to know on the business and practical side, because a lot of money is wasted in AI, and in part we're in business to, to ensure that, that that is not wasted. Um, but are you talking more on the political social issues side, like like big picture kind of societal unrest kind of side? I'm um, actually yeah. interested in in the technological developments themselves. Huh. Um, yeah, you know, well, okay, a couple things there. So I will be very transparent with you. You know, my call before you guys today, again, uh, high-level folks at, at a, a large U.S. bank, um, uh, it's rarely about the algorithm. So most of our focus is on sort of what are the inputs, what are the outputs, less so on like what's the, what's the screaming edge of NLP at like the lab in Stanford, right? Because mm -hmm. it's often going to take, even if something super cool happens there, for one of my clients to be able to plug that in and have it make money is going to be like many, many years. And, and ultimately, we're about sort of boots on the ground impact AI. Like when we go to Interpol, right, even if we're talking outside of companies, we're talking about governments. We go to Interpol, we talk about AI and policing. They're not saying um, what kind of support vector machine and, you know, what kind of, you know, what, what, what's new in linear algebra that's building support vector, right? They're just like, can we pick up on, you know, different kinds of automobiles from this, you know, distance above the street with only satellite view, you know, something like that, right? I'm giving you a random example. Um, so it's, it's inputs and outputs is our language. So I'm, I'm less skilled on what's happening in Stanford and Oxford on the tech side. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, of things I think people should know about on the tech side, uh, a meta trend that is sort of meta true is that these technologies, particularly in computer vision and programmatically generated content are improving rather quickly. So if we look at um, when I gave my first talk on, on programmatically generated faces and people, for example, like two and a half years ago, um, uh, just looking at where that was then and where it is now, wildly different. You know, it was, it was this, this very, it was actually, it was, it, it was in an MIT lab. It was not out in the world, really. Um, it was taking um, a picture of a person and then putting them in whatever pose we wanted. So it was like, you know, hundreds of poses and then just saying, okay, here's a picture of a person, have them doing that yoga pose. And then it would just display the image. And it was kind of grainy. It was kind of weird, but it was neat that you could just take a person, just a random photo of a person on the street and just have them playing golf, have them, you know, uh, like holding a microphone, have them doing mm -hmm. whatever you want. Have them um, doing porn. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, of course, that's, that's where things go. Um, and, and well, actually, this is okay. You're steering us in the direction I wanted to go, not because I want to get into porn, but because this is becoming more accessible. Really? So the idea oh, is on, that man. was really <laughs> that was really grainy and rough back then. Now those programmatically generated poses are are really strong. 
And, and, and we can actually take a, a set of pictures of a person. I think there was one experiment I saw in academia where it was a single picture of a person and then have them do a whole dance, like programmatically create a video of them doing like Fortnite dances or something crazy like that. Now, it's still distinguishable. If you squint and you look at it, it's still distinguishable. But the fact that a year and a half, two years, we went from like stick figure level, but really interesting to like, wow, from a distance, I would believe this. You know, in two more years, we might be pretty close to indistinguishable. Um, and at that point, we're getting to a big kind of crescendo dynamic. And this is what we talked about at UN headquarters. And I'm going to keep beating this drum at the UN because I think it's important. For five or six generations, images, video, uh, audio were artifacts of things that actually happened, events that actually happened. Over the next 10 years, that will clearly not be the case. And that broad dynamic is what we're not ready for. Um, that doesn't really matter as much when the technology is really hard to use and it's not really perfect when you see it. But when any reasonably smart college senior in computer science can take, you know, 30 seconds of video of a teacher and create really, really disturbing stuff that you would need advanced software to figure out is fake, I think we are going to run into issues. Um, mm. and, and, and so it's about, it's about the speed of progress. I think for the most part, what's interesting, what people should know less than algorithm A, algorithm B, I don't know which one of these are going to win the race, but there's so many runners and so many of, of them have crossed mm. the hurdles over the past. that if I look two years forward, you know, we're looking at powerful stuff. And so I think that's why it should be on the radar. It's fantastic that, uh, we're talking about these things, uh, as they're happening right now, things that have been sort of talked about in, in, in the philosophies of, say, Nick Land or Deleuze, where we're moving from how things are in themselves, and, you know, a video is an artifact of something that happened, all the way towards sort of an epistemic Armageddon, where what do I believe? How do I value stuff? God knows, right? It could be fake, could be real. So it really demands a sort of different way to relate to, to, to many things. Um, and I know that, that you work with, with a lot of sectors with uh, defense. I've seen uh, stuff on Emerge around healthcare. Yep. Um, so it's kind of a two-part question. First is, what sectors do you see as being the most prime for disruption by this, this exponential development of AI? And then secondly, uh, how does this reflect itself on creativity? Do you, do you see any space for the creative disciplines for, um, for that angle of things? Yeah, yeah, really different questions. So I, I'm also not as familiar with Deleuze and the other folks that you were talking about. I guess you and Owen have your own uh, your own uh, philosophical and sociological backgrounds and lingo that you guys understand. But um, to, to address your point around sectors, um, adoption of artificial intelligence, in other words, relatively radical change to business processes, has been slow going for a great number of reasons. Um, I have given presentations and written lengthy articles on exactly this. There's a great article called Critical Capabilities. So if anybody wants to Google E-M-E-R-J, that's Emerge, Critical Capabilities, they can pull up sort of um, some of the reasons this has been hard. So the first thing I'll say is that radical transformation of, let's say, banking, let's say oil and gas, et cetera, um, feels like it's, it's going to be a little bit more of an evolution than a revolution for the most part in most of these sectors. Um, the folks that are moving the fastest are the people who are already moving the fastest and who are the most digitally native. Um, I could probably bucket that into online media. So, you know, your Facebooks of the world, but also broader, you know, YouTube is a good example as well. I mean, obviously Google as well. So big tech often fits in online media. 
-hmm. But online media, these are digital worlds. Um, uh, it's much harder to pull data from an oil and gas pipeline with physical sensors than it is a fully instrumented, a fully instrumented digital world where everything's trackable automatically, right? Your sensor, if it's out in Alaska, is going to get too cold, it's going to fall off. And we're not going to have reliable data. But within Amazon, every freaking pixel my mouse crosses over is tracked. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's we're in a better place when we're in a virtual ecosystem. So online media, e-commerce, broadly, those guys are, are uh, have been the disruptors. They've been the trendsetters of the hopes and dreams of venture capitalists investing in all these other sectors. And they continue to be the forerunners of the most progress. They're the mm. biggest entities of talent. I don't see that changing tomorrow. Um, I think fintech, so kind of financial tech, more cutting edge, uh, uh, consumer facing sort of financial applications. Um, you know, we might reference like your Robin Hoods and robo advisors, but there, there's a broader ecosystem there. Um, th that's a space that's moving faster pound for pound than banking. Um, right now, I don't have enough confidence to, to see it toppling banking over in its entirety. But I would say the fastest moving spaces are the ones that have been the fastest moving. Um, we may see some big dinosaur extinction events where all the, like right now, all the big brick and mortar retailers might be crumbling right now, right? Um, uh, to a certain degree. We might see something similar like that happening in banking. I don't see enough of those to be all there. But what I will say is the forerunners are going to keep being the forerunners for, mm. for the next decade with, with almost very little question in my mind. Um, there's a chance defense steps up, like if tensions get hot enough internationally, there's a chance that defense just starts sucking in as much talent as it can and big mm. national budgets and and national level vigor go into that, and that starts draining from big tech and starts consolidating there. But I don't see it happening a lick in life sciences, banking, et cetera, to any, to any degree similar to what we see in the real forerunner industry. So that, that's the, let me know if that tackles your first question. Fantastic answer, yes. Okay. And so the second um, question was a little bit about what are the implications of, of that for user experience in terms of, you know, we, are, we have been interacting with these devices for not too long. Uh, so it does fall into the category of online media. Where do you see the future going in there? Yeah, you were saying, so what does it mean for the future of the creative arts or creative experience or something? Am I hearing you right? I'm talking about that. I'm talking about sort of creativity in the broad sense, but also specifically in terms of being creative with uh, digital experience, user experience, how people interact with digital devices. Is there space for being creative and innovating how that is done? For, for sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, my, my, the call I just had, the podcast probably not going to air until November, but it was actually about um, recommending different features within a bank's um, like mobile app, where if we know a customer's problems, let's say they've had an overdraft, let's say they've had a phone call two weeks ago about a certain issue, and we see that they only have a certain amount of money in their accounts, when they log into the app, we can determine through recommendations from similar customers or or just based on their own past activity as to what features they're likely going to want to click. So the, the interface might be um, displayed in a way that's going to showcase the things they're more likely to need in that moment. So even in, in the stodgier companies, these things are being experimented with. Now, I will say the vast majority of banks are pretty far from having that be reality. I think that's the aspiration for many banks. I think we're far from that. But even in those spaces, we're seeing action and traction there. Of course, Facebook is the great example of this, right? Google is the great example of this. Uh, Amazon is a great example of this. This sort of you show up and it's whatever you want. YouTube is a great example of this. Um, so clearly there's traction there. The fact that the right now it's trying to use AI to generate these, these you know, new amazing experiences that are going to mesh with what somebody really wants. 
you need two things that most people don't have at all. We might list 17 things, but I'll give you two because we've got 12 minutes. Um, one is uh, you need a fat bench of data science talent. You need some real deal skills. You know, you're, you're not going to pull some undergrad to go build this thing for you. You know, you're, you're going to need actual skills and probably someone who also understands user experience. You're going to need somebody with a little bit of data science and you know, folks with some real competence in the user experience side, and they're going to have to have a lot of osmosis for a while, and, and that's tough. So um, a big bench of, of that skill set that understands user experience is hard. The other side of it is a lot of data, right? Uh, we talked about the flywheel. So Amazon has so many users, they create such a better experience that they get so many, many more users, they get so much more experience, et cetera, et cetera. Um, most organizations don't have the volume of usership that they would need to be able to make that interface really tangibly, quantifiably better in terms of whatever we're optimizing for. Remember, we're always optimizing for something here. We use Facebook, but every business is optimizing for something. Mm -hmm. We want to get some result uh, from these engagements. We don't know if we're actually moving the needle. So could we say as a tiny three-person company, oh, we're using NLP to customize the users. You have no idea if that's actually working. You have no idea. You do not have the ability to test it. Number one, you don't have the skill sets to be able to generate enough permutations to really create you know, radical changes in growth anyway. You just have some little text bar that maybe displays a welcome message that might be different person to person. Everybody can do toys. But if you want to really generate new experiences, you need the bench of talent, you need massive amounts of data so that you can calibrate those experiences across a ton of users and figure out um, which ones are actually improving. Mm. So is this opening up creativity? Sure, if you're part of those teams at companies that are savvy enough and have enough data and talent and enough uh, skill set to be working on these things. And, and if you want to do that, the best place to go is Silicon Valley. I say all the time, and I wrote a whole article about it once, um, B2B and B2C AI are different. If you want AI that's interfacing with human beings, you're in their face. You're changing what they're seeing in real time. That's very different. If I use a search application to search for legal documents in the back of my bank, okay, I type in I, and I can maybe more quickly find things based on broader sets of keywords or or um, mm -hmm. sets of themes and terms beyond just individual strings of words. Um, so I'm using NLP and AI in some sense. If that doesn't work 80% of the time, but it works way better than most things, um, uh, or if that, sorry, if that doesn't work um, even 40% of the time, but 60% of the time, I'm finding whatever legal doc I wanted way quicker than I was before. As a user within that bank, I'm actually probably okay with that. I mean, on the net, right, net, net is probably saving me a little bit of time, so I'm fine with that. We have nowhere near that kind of allowance with customer-facing applications. Mm -hmm. Nowhere near that kind of allowance. We need really fast iteration cycles. We cannot completely screw up the user's experience. We need really fast iteration cycles. We need to be able to learn quickly. What does that mean? It means we, we need, we need that, that, that talent I talked about. We need sufficient data. The, the real place of density of customer-facing AI talent is in the Bay Area. That's mm. where it is. Because they don't teach that in school. You don't go to Carnegie Mellon and learn how to use oodles of customer. Maybe they have some course where they're trying to model it, but there's no real experience of, of that business, uh, uh, sort of those business requirements and needs and, and restrictions and whatnot and, and, uh, and real kinds of business data that you would get if you work at, let's say, a Facebook, uh, a YouTube, uh, 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 you know, one of these other, these other big companies. So I would say creativity is getting opened up if you're one of those folks. So we're not mm -hmm. at the place where AI can just make everybody their own new programmatically generated artist. I think we'll get there, but um, we're, we're safely a, a solid decade out or you know seven years out or something. Mm, so Dan, as we're drawing to the end now, I know we spent a bunch of time talking about the near future. 
just looking at your website before we spoke, I know you've also done some writing on post-humanism and what we're looking at in the in the far future, as opposed to put it simply. I wonder if you could just share some your thoughts on what that might look like. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, um, so Daniel brought up a good point that's kind of leading us there. Um, in my personal opinion, we are going in. In other words, these virtual ecosystems will continue to satisfy more and more of our demands. There's a, a phenomenon in Japan referred to as hikikomori. Are you familiar with what a hikikomori is? So oh, I'm not. People who shut off a society, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So hikikomori are, are men, uh, mostly, I don't know, 90-something percent, um, <clears throat> who pulled away from society, live with their parents until their parents die, basically, and just never get a job, never even interact with people in the real world, often never leave the house, like for decades, plural. Um, and this phenomena is a combination of a lot of things, some of which are culturally specific to Japan, in so much as I understand it. I'm not a scholar on the matter, but I've done enough tertiary digging to, to have a gist. Um, but also because they, um, they found, so, so that their economy took a hit, and these men are, are unable to sort of feel like they have value out in the real world. I think our economy is about to hit, uh, take a hit, and many men are going to feel like they don't have as much value in the real world. I think in the middle of America, we already see a lot of that. Uh, hence, hence the deaths of despair, yes? Hence the, mm. hence the fentanyl uh, coming over from, uh, from Asia. Um, but uh, and, and, and a, a ripe market for it, brother, a ripe market for it. I think, I think if I was China, I'd be, I'd, be sh I'd be schlepping them blue Skittles heavy in the next, in the next two years, man. Because uh, there's going to be a market for it when this, when this, uh, this economic hit comes in. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that this dynamic of pulling into digital ecosystems is also because needs are being satisfied. There's a sense of community with these massive online multiplayer games. There's also, you know, a lot of pornographic stuff to satisfy those categories of needs. There's a lot of novelty, a lot of gamified kind of virtual experiences that can feel engaging and kind of symbolize life almost in some sense. And the way I imagine it um, is people will initially VR and, and kind of uh, traditional virtual experiences as we, we know them now will be step one. At some point, maybe some level of haptics will be involved in that. At some level, at some point, some level of brain computer interface will be involved in that. And I think most people are going to eat the lotus. Eating the lotus means stepping away from the state of nature, stepping away from the stressors and strains and, and, and entering a space where things are generated to your pleasures, to your preferences, to your moods in the moment. And, and that will be so compelling that eventually we are far from it today. I get a lot of refreshment from walking in the actual woods and like reading a physical book of let's say Emerson or Montaigne or something like that. Um, eventually there will be a programmatically generated correlate of that so calibrated to all the best walks in the woods I've ever taken and so calibrated to all the most beautiful scenery in the world and like super temperature calibrated in terms of haptics that I will prefer to refresh my very soul in a virtual experience than in a physical one. And, and there is also a point, now we may be decades plural from this, there's also a point where friendship or lovers or teachers are just better programmatically generated than in the real world. Just better. Better in terms of teaching us more. Better in terms of not having their own needs or potentially harming us in some way. Um, better in terms of really being calibrated to our preferences or helping us grow with certain qualities or whatever the case may be. Better by whatever our criteria of better are. And I think that um, more and more folks are, are going to go in. As those virtual systems drink in more and more data, those, those uh, ecosystems are going to become more and more mature. This is a three-decade ball game. I am in the long game. I believe that influencing the long game is the only reason I care about AI today. I don't 
you know, anti-money laundering, I'm happy as heck when I feel like I've saved somebody some money or made them help them make the right decision. But ultimately, I'm interested in the, in the long term. But yeah, I, I see that that to be where we're going to go uh, for the most part um, as, as one of the snapshots of the direction we're headed in. And mm. we talked about here. Yeah, I mean, I even I totally agree with that analysis. And I actually imagine that it's going to play some part in in perhaps anesthetizing is a strong and nasty word, but basic, perhaps even kind of numbing people from the worst, the pains of whatever is going on in experience, especially if things get economically more ugly, which at the moment it seems is happening. And to prevent kind of large scale political destabilization and conflict, it seems like really the opium of the masses, the bread and circus is VR playgrounds. We already know what the bread and circus is, my brother. We already know it's the mobile phone. We already know it's YouTube. We already know what the bread and circus is. And so, yes, we're going to go in. Most people will use it to eat the lotus, to escape the state of nature, to escape the flawed vessel that is not built for well-being. They will, they will enter a system that calibrates as much of it as they can. There is no market for anything more than well-being. Well-being, like preferable qualia, preferable felt experience, is the only market. It is the ultimate market. And so most people will use these, these ecosystems to eat the lotus. Some people, so I, I have an article called Lotus Eaters and World Eaters. It's Googleable. Um, but uh, th there will be another category of people that uses these extensions of capability to, yes, maybe calibrate more bliss, but also to wield more power. The only way you're going to be able to be super useful and valuable, whether you're a politician or a business owner or whatever in the future, is to be able to massively expand your capabilities with these technologies and marshal other folks to do the same for your causes and your ends. And so some people will become world leaders where they will just extend their capabilities to these digital spheres and, and become more and more and more capable. They're not bad people, by the way. They might just be ambitious and they don't only want to eat lotuses, right? I understand that. Um, but I, I suspect the most people just want the pain to stop. I suspect most living is essentially just coping. Um, and that and that we're seeing that now and we'll continue to see it into the future as very nice, rife little nests for settling in, into or escaping your coping are uh, built in these virtual ecosystems. That's incredible, Adeep. And that just opens up such so, so many uh, more avenues for this conversation to continue. I hope we can, can schedule another one and, and because I want to ask you all about what ontological design could be as well about the only market that there is the market for better quality. That just blew my mind right there. Yeah, so thank my, you so much. My first TEDx, if you want to see, so I have a TEDx called um, uh, Tinkering with Consciousness, which essentially builds up to that as the crescendo. So if you want to know what mm. the hell I'm talking about there. So I'm like, we'll definitely do that. Cool. Yeah, anyway, I hope we get to find another chance for another call. I know I got a bounce today, but guys, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me. Let's yeah, you need to get that. off to the mats. Um, Dan, do you want to plug yourself anywhere? Where can people find you? Sure. Yeah, yeah. If folks want to learn more about what we do at Emerge, so if they're you know in working in big industry and, and aiming to apply AI in these spaces, um, it's emerj.com. That's the name of the website. Contact information, pretty easy to get a hold of us. Um, or people can just reach me on Twitter. It's just at Dan Fagella, Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to find me there as well. So if folks want to continue the combo, let me know you heard me on uh, on this this show here so I know the direction you're coming from and what kind of stuff you want to chat about. So anyway, that's it. Fuck yes, nice one. Fascinating, thank you.
Hello, people, once again. And if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao.